Good evening. This is Professor Caprio um, to talk about the sacraments of healing. I hope you all are doing well and hanging in there. So let's start with the sacraments of healing. Sacraments of healing include two sacraments. They include the sacraments of reconciliation as well as the anointing of the sick. I think it's beautiful that we have these sacraments. Again, we are, we are continuing on with Christ's healing work through these sacraments. We have been wounded. Remember, we've been wounded by original sin, um, and we are, in our baptism, healed. But we still have this inclination. We still have this tinder for sin because original sin caused damage, and so it leaves behind a woundedness. And so that needs to be healed. And so as we move forward in our lives, um, many things can be used um, to heal the wound that we have sustained. And the sacraments of healing are two of those things. Even though baptism has taken away original sin, the temporal consequences due to that original sin still remain. We still get sick. We still age. We still suffer. And ultimately, we will die a physical death. And so through these sacraments of healing, Christ continues his healing mission, his healing ministry. He continues to restore us both bodily and spiritually. I'm going to cover the sacrament of penance first, and it has multiple names as I've listed on your PowerPoint presentation. There's different names for the sacrament of penance. It is called the sacrament of conversion. Why? Because in this sacrament, just by going to the sacrament of confession, we are turning away from sin and turning towards God. What happens in the sacrament of confession? We sit down with a man who has been given the authority and the, the power through holy orders to be in the person of Christ. And so just going to confession is a turning towards the Father and away from sin. It's called the sacrament of penance because penance is about making reparation, you know, making up for the damage that we have caused. And every sin causes some kind of damage. And so it's called the sacrament of penance because we're called to make reparation for what we've done. I often use the analogy of a child playing baseball on his neighbor's front lawn, hitting that baseball through his neighbor's front window and smashing it. The neighbor child goes to the neighbor and, and begs for forgiveness, says how sorry he is. And of course, the neighbor's like, it's okay, it's all right. But we got some we got some work to do here. Can you get a broom and, and get that, you know, picker upper and let's get this cleaned up because our sin causes damage. It's not enough that we've been forgiven. Now we have to clean up the mess that we've made. We have to make reparation. And so that's part of this sacrament. It's also called the sacrament of confession because we're called to make an auricular, and that's auricular, A-U-R-I-C-U-L-A-R. It 
it refers to the ear, right? It, we're called to make an auricular confession, a verbal one, so someone else can hear our sins. Because even though the priest is standing in the person of Christ, the person of Christ is in him, and it is Christ who forgives our sins, this individual is still a man, right? And so he's been given power and authority, but he's not God. And so he can't read our minds. And so when Jesus instituted this sacrament, he said to the disciples, he said to the apostles, whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Well, in order for these men to forgive sin, they must hear what the sins are. And this helps us too. This helps us too to, to spell out the sins that we have committed. It's called the sacrament of forgiveness because it's the place where we can know that we have been forgiven. You know, we can talk kind of philosophical, philosophically about, you know, God's mercy and his forgiveness. And we can, we can know at a level that we are loved, but can we know concretely and objectively that we have been forgiven? Well, in confession, we are told I absolve you from your sins. And that I is not Father Mike. That I is not Father Wayne. That I is the person of Jesus Christ. It's called the Sacrament of Reconciliation because in confessing our sins, in being forgiven and absolved of our sins, we are reconciled back to the Father. Just like we were reconciled back in our baptism. Now, there is a deep connection between penance and baptism. Baptism restores us initially to friendship with God, right? We are given back that original grace of redemption that Christ offers to us through his life, passion, death, and resurrection. And so baptism saves us. Penance saves us again. <laughs> It's in penance that if we have committed even very serious sins, sins of abortion, sins of stealing, sins of the Ten Commandments, very serious matter, when we confess them, we can in fact be forgiven again. And so the sins that we're bringing to the sacrament of confession, of course, are our, our sins. And so baptism takes away original sin, which was what we inherited, it wasn't personal. But sins of confession are our personal sins. And, and I don't like to use that word because I think I've said to you, you all before that there is no personal sin, right? Sin impacts the civilization of love that we are called to create through our lives. And when we sin, we disturb the civilization of love that is being created in and through the church. And so the important thing for us to remember is that even though we've been baptized, concupiscence still exists. That tinder for sin, that's what Augustine called it, tinder for sin exists in us. And so we have a tendency um, to choose poorly, to misuse our freedom again. Augustine talks about two conversions. The first conversion being the conversion of water, which of course is our baptism where we're restored back to new life in the Father. 
But the second conversion, he says, is the conversion of tears. And that's when we fall and we feel bad about it. And we go to confession. And oftentimes I, I think that confession does move us to tears because we are really making real our failures, our sins. And that often can really rend our hearts. The sacrament of penance calls for a conversion of the heart. And this conversion of heart should be manifested in outward signs. And that's why Augustine called it the conversion of tears. And so we should have contrition. We should have sorrow for what we have done. We should feel bad about it. There should be a radical reorientation of our whole lives as a result of recognizing this sin, confessing this sin, and then being forgiven. And so when we are forgiven, when we are given absolution, we are given God's life in us again, his grace. And so from the love of God, we receive the grace of the Son in the Spirit, and now we have the power to live rightly again. There's different forms of penance in the Christian life, and I think we've talked about three of them. We've talked about fasting, prayer, and almsgiving. And these are really probably the most famous, and, and they are the most important, really. Um, and sometimes when we make a confession, we're giving these as, um, as penances. Um, certainly we're given prayer. But fasting is a really powerful form of penance. And Jesus speaks about this in the gospel. When his disciples are unable to expel a demon, Jesus has to do it for them. And they ask him why. And he says, this kind can only be expelled with both prayer and fasting. And so fasting is powerful because it really signifies a mastery of our will over our passions. We empty ourselves and we become hungry for the most important thing. Oftentimes, you know, we're hungry and we think it's lasagna we're hungry for, a new dress, you know, more money, whatever that might be. But ultimately, we're made for more. And there's that infinite space um, for which only God can fill. So the first form of penance is fasting, very powerful tool. And that's why the church really asks us to fast different times throughout the year so we can experience that. We can recognize that we are not like the animals. We don't work by instinct. We worked by our memory, our intellect, and our will. And if we don't manage our passions, if we can't master them, they will master us. So very important for us to recognize that. And so the church really helps us to understand that. The second form of penance in the Christian life is prayer. And, you know, it, it doesn't seem to me to be much of a penance. It's actually, you know, dialogue with the one who, who loves us the, the most, who wills our highest good. And so prayer is really being in communion with God, asking for his life, his gifts, his grace. 
Almsgiving is another form of a penance, um, which is very common in the Catholic tradition. And that is really doing good out of gratitude. We're so grateful that everything we have, we have received, that we want to give back. And so almsgiving is, is serving and, and there's so many ways to do this, right? It's serving, and that means that we don't get anything in return. We don't get paid, you know, we don't get favor. We just serve. We're just giving of ourselves. Um, and that's what almsgiving really does. You know, some people think that almsgiving is only in giving $5 to the guy that's on the corner or whatever. And, and sometimes that's not the best way to help someone. Sometimes the most meaningful almsgiving is actually going with that person to McDonald's and buying them a $5 meal, wishing them well, having a conversation, making a hope bag, placing in a paper bag, canned soup, you know, one of those energy bars, a list of services that these folks can access, a bottle of water, maybe a gift card for groceries and then giving those out on the corner to those that are deeply in need. Nobody stands at a corner. Nobody stands on the corner um, thinking that, you know, this is gonna make me rich. So, so many people that are out there are struggling with mental illness um, and we're one paycheck away from, from the street. And sometimes um, that could be you or I. And so important for us to remember that. Forms of penance in our daily life, well, this is living as, as sons and daughters of the Father, forgiving others for their slights that they do to us, not maybe calling someone out when we know it might embarrass them. Again, being compassionate and kind and generous assuming the best of someone who we live with, someone that we work with. Sometimes that's really hard to do. Give people the benefit of the doubt. Give them one more chance. I just think about how many chances God has given me and that encourages me to be conformed to him. Reading sacred scripture doing the liturgy of the hours. These are all ways in which we can really conform ourselves to the Lord, know him well. Sacred scripture is God's word to us. You know, so many people say to me, I, I can't hear God. I can't hear him speak. Well, read his word. That's, that's God speaking. The liturgy of the hours is, is actually a, a set of prayers that the religious and, and priests are actually bound to do at least twice a day. And so everyone that's in holy orders or religious life is praying the exact same prayers, kind of like the mass, right? Every time we go to mass on a particular day, everyone who is Catholic, who is participating in a mass is, is participating in the exact same prayers and readings. That's powerful. That's a billion people basically praying the same prayer at the same time. How can, the Lord, how can the Lord not answer us? 
And so the Liturgy of the Hours reminds us that we are a church, that we're a communion of persons. And this can be penitential because it takes our most valuable asset, right, which is our time. The church also gives us seasons and days of penance, right? It gives us Advent and Lent. And these are both seasons of preparation. Preparation for what? Advent's a preparation for the coming of Jesus at Christmas. Lent is a, is a preparation for the new recreation that Christ gives to us in his passion, death, and resurrection. And so for the resurrection, this is what we're preparing for. I think the best story in, in sacred scripture and in, in the gospels is the story of the, of the prodigal son. It really provides to us all three elements which are present in the sacrament of confession. It speaks about conversion, confession, and finally satisfaction. Think about what happens in the prodigal son. The prodigal son is a story of a, a younger son, younger son of, of a very wealthy landowner. And this wealthy landowner has multiple servants and lots of land. The picture of, of the prodigal son that Rembrandt puts together for us is, is a beautiful portrait which portrays the father as having rich robes. And so he's a wealthy man. And this younger son comes to his father and he says, give me my share of my inheritance. What's amazing is that the younger son didn't have a claim to an inheritance. The younger son never does. It's always the first son. And so he's asking for something that is not his. This stands for us, y'all. Like we, we are asking for forgiveness. We're, we're asking for a restoration that we don't deserve. An inheritance that was given to us in the life of the son. And so the prodigal son is us. And so this, this prodigal son, this younger son, actually is given what he asks because the father respects, respects freedom, right? And so he, he gives him what is really undeserved. And the son goes off and he squanders it. He goes off to foreign lands, to lands that are, are different from the values that he grew up in. And he squanders it. He squanders his inheritance. And it's, it's very um, compelling in the picture that Rembrandt has painted. It's a picture of an old man and his son is, is kneeling before him and he's, he's in tattered clothing. He has a bald head. The only thing that remains that gives us a sign of his nobility is his sword that is on his side. And that's, that's actually a sign that it's a sign of our baptism because we can never sell our baptism. I mean, don't you think that he would have sold his baptism if he could, if he could get some money for it? But see, our, our baptism is, is, gives us an indelible spiritual mark that we can never throw away. We can never give away. It's, even if we choose hell, we will be marked with the sign of Christ forever. So he goes off to foreign lands. He ends up tending pigs, which is like the lowest of the low for a Jewish kid. 
He's not even supposed to be near the pigs, and here he's feeding the pigs. He has hit rock bottom. And, you know, in this time of really isolation and devastation, he begins to think of home and the house of his father, that his, his father's servants are living better than he's living. They have enough to eat. They have clothes to wear. They have a place to sleep. He says, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and I'm going to tell my father, I am sorry for everything that I've done. Please just make me a servant. This is the beginning of conversion, a turning back to the father. He's thinking of the goodness and the generosity and the mercy of the father. This begins his turning back towards home. And so he, he starts towards home and he starts to walk towards home. And when he's still a far way off, you see, this kid has turned towards God, but he's got a long way to go, right? He's got a long way to go, but he has begun the journey and the father sees him from a long way off. See, the father's been looking for him. And he goes running to the son. Now, it's interesting in some commentaries, I have heard that the reason that the father runs towards the son is because it's probable that the whole town hates the younger son. Because, see, the town is really dependent upon this wealthy landowner for their sustenance. And so they might have stoned the younger son had they gotten their hands on him first. But regardless, this is what the father does. Even when we make one small movement towards him, he pours grace out into our hearts and gives us the power to continue the conversion process. When he gets to his father, he kneels down in front of him and begins the second element in the sacrament of penance. He confesses. He says, Father, I have sinned against God and against you. But before he can even finish his confession, the father restores him to sonship. And that's, that's what God does. You know, even as we're making our way to the confessional and we're worried about how we're going to confess this really bad sin, God has forgiven us. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't go into the confessional. We must go into the confessional because that's the ordinary way in which we are forgiven. But God is so merciful. He wants us to be obedient to the sacrament that Jesus Christ established. And so the father restores the younger son to sonship. And he does this by calling for robes to be put on him, rings on his finger. He restores him to the sonship of the kingdom of God. And then he calls for a feast. It's kind of a prefigurement for the wedding feast of the lamb, right? But he calls for the killing of the fatted calf. And the celebration begins. Now there's an older son, right? The one to whom the inheritance was supposed to go to completely. And he's coming in from the fields and he sees one of the servants and he says, what's going on? The servant says, oh, your brother has returned. Your father has called for a feast. And the older son is mad and he won't come inside. And so the father goes out 
to meet the older son as well. And he says, son, your brother has returned. We must celebrate. I thought he was dead, but he's alive. Come inside and celebrate with us. And then the older son says, you know what? I have been faithful to you all these years. And yet you've never even given me and my friends a goat to celebrate with. And now this prodigal son of yours returns and you kill the fatted calf, one who has squandered half of my inheritance. And the father's incredulous. He looks at the, the older son. He says, son, you have always been here with me. Everything that I have is yours. But this brother of yours was lost, and now he's found. We must celebrate. And so this is really important. You know, I think sometimes those of us who have always been Catholic, we've always been of the Father's house, but maybe not recognizing all the gifts that are inside the Father's house. Have we partaken of those gifts? Have we received what the Lord wants to give us in their fullness? Have we responded in, a living, in living our lives the way we're called to so that we can experience abundant joy, abundant love? And that's what the older son is missing. You see, he's, he's never left home, but he too is lost. And so the final element of, of confession is, is satisfaction. The younger son is making his satisfaction. The older son has yet to do his. His father's given him what he must do. Come inside, celebrate, be happy for what has happened to your younger, young, younger brother. And so, if we think about what sin is, it's an offense against God. Sin causes a rupture of communion with him. When we sin, especially in a, a serious way, a mortal sin, a sin that involves grave matter, and we know it's grave matter. So all those elements of, of choosing wrongly are present. Our freedom is not impacted. We're able to freely choose. We know that this particular sin is wrong, and yet we do it anyway. Full knowledge, full freedom, we turn away from God. We separate ourselves from him. It is not God's choice. It is ours. This rupture of communion with God doesn't just impact our relationship with me and the Father. It, it, it damages communion with the whole church. Sin has that effect. Because when I sin, I am disturbed. I am not capable of loving as fully and freely as I did before. I become self-focused instead of other-focused. And so I, I take away from the whole community of faith, what I could have been contributing had I been full of grace. And so there is no personal sin. My sin impacts 
my relationship with God and my relationship with the world. Conversion entails forgiveness and reconciliation with both God the Father and the world and the church. Now in the sacrament of, of reconciliation, it is Christ who forgives. He is the one who gives the authority to the priest and, and uses the hands and the voice of the priest to forgive. When did Jesus institute the sacrament of reconciliation? Well, he did so on the day that he rose from the dead. He had just saved the world from, from their own sin, right? He, has, he died, he conquered sin and death by rising from the dead. So why do we need confession, right? Well, if you remember on that night when the apostles were in the upper room, Jesus comes through the locked doors. He enters through. He's in his glorified body. And the apostles are terrified. And he says, peace be with you. See, this is what Jesus wants us to have. He wants us to have peace. He says, peace be with you. And he says, here, it's, it's me. You can touch me. You can touch me. And then he says to the apostles, he gives them their mission. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Now, the only people that were present in the upper room were the 11. Judas had killed himself. The 11 apostles are present. So he doesn't give this to the whole church. He gives this to his priests, his apostles. He doesn't even give it to Mary. He says, whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you retain, they will be retained. He breathes on them. He gives them his spirit. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you retain, they are retained. So you see, Jesus gives the apostles something they didn't already have. And that is the sacrament of holy orders. And then he institutes the sacrament of reconciliation. And so... This is why we believe that the sacrament of reconciliation is necessary. And, and we know it's necessary because we know that even though we've been baptized, we still fall short of loving and living well. Okay, so what's the history of this sacrament? Was it always the way it is now? No, it wasn't. In the first centuries of the church, there was a lot of controversy about you know, how many times do we forgive? Do we let somebody commit a mortal sin twice or just once? Or, I mean, it's kind of interesting because Jesus is very clear about, you know, forgiving people as much as, as, as your heavenly father has forgiven you. He taught us that in the Our Father. And yet there was a lot of controversy about this. In the early church, if, if, if a person committed adultery, if they committed murder, if they committed idolatry, worshiping other gods, 
there was a lengthy separation between that person and public worship. They had to do a public penance. They would have to stand on the side of a road with a sign that says, I'm an adulterer. Everyone would know that this person was a big sinner. And so you can imagine what it took for people um, to actually confess their sins. It wasn't until the seventh century when the Irish monks introduced a new way of confessing sins. And this was private penance. And really this was a beautiful way um, to really reconcile anyone who, who desired it back into the church. And so this is where we see a more pastoral approach um, to confession. Um, it shows the mercy of God, the generosity of God, the forgiveness that is available to everyone for any sin. There is no sin that is unforgivable. The only sin that Jesus said is unforgivable is a sin against the Holy Spirit. That is to not believe that God can forgive you. That's why, that's why uh, you know, being scrupulous is a, such a problem. You know, scrupulosity doesn't believe in the forgiveness of God. It, begin, it believes that I can, I'm unforgivable, and, and we can't, we can't um, live there. We must, must recognize the power of God. So I want you to know um, those three elements of the sacrament. I want you to know that um, someone must have contrition for their sin. So when they go into the confessional, that's what the priest is really looking for. And, and you know, this is not hard to, to ascertain, right? It's, it's hard to forgive your sins. Um, so contrition is, is being looked for. So, so for an example, you know, I may have used this in class before, but, you know, if, if a guy goes in and, and, and confesses to adultery, you know, with his mistress, you know, the priest is going to say, okay, you know, um, go and sin no more. And, and, and if the penitent says something to the effect of, well, could you hurry up, Father, because I got a date with her in two hours, um, you know, he is not going to provide absolution. If someone comes and confesses cohabitation or sex outside of marriage, um, the priest is saying, okay, so how, how are we going to avoid this sin going forward? Oh, Father, I, I'm not sure I, I can avoid that sin. Um, well, then we, we, need, we have work to do, right? And so, so contrition is critical, being sorry for our sins. Now, there is such a thing as perfect contrition. And perfect contrition is when I'm sorry purely for the love of God. I'm, I'm sorry purely because I love the Lord. And I, I got to be honest with you, I, it's rare that, that I think we, we experience this. A lot of times we're sorry because we got caught or we're sorry because someone found out or we're sorry because we're embarrassed. We're sorry because we lost something that was valuable to us. The perfect contrition is the only contrition that would actually allow for forgiveness of a particular sin outside of the ordinary way. And very few of us have perfect contrition. And so confession is what is necessary. So contrition is important. Confession, confessing our sins, actually saying all of our sins. Um, all mortal sins must be confessed before you can return to Holy Communion. Um, how many times you confess, the priest will ask you those questions. Um, and so we want to make sure we've, we've, we say all of our sins. If for some reason we truly forget a sin and we remember after we leave confession, 
um, they have been forgiven. If we truly just forgot um, that that sin has been forgiven. And then satisfaction comes when the priest gives us our penance. He'll say, okay, I want you to go and pray two Hail Marys and then go and do something nice for your wife if that's who the sin was against. Or um, go and you know do a public service for the poor um, if you've been struggling with generosity, something like that. Um, so those are, the, those are the, the three elements of the sacrament of confession. Um, and then, of course, we have to remember that all of this is due to God's action through the church, through Jesus Christ. The next um, slide just basically says what I've already said, that penance requires contrition, confession, satisfaction, and penance is what actually gives us that opportunity to do satisfaction. So we're going to do what um, the priest actually told us to do. So if we, he told us to do a prayer and something nice, we need to do those things. Um, and if we don't, knowingly, um, you know, we really put our um, the the movement of grace in us at peril, right? Um, we're still forgiven, um, but we really want God's grace to be flowing through us. And when we, again, are not obedient, we hamper that. Our disposition matters. And so it's important for us to follow through um, with those movements. The minister of the sacrament of penance, of confession, of reconciliation, is either a bishop or a priest. A deacon cannot perform the sacrament of confession. This is... Um, the ministerial priesthood that is called um, to this sacrament. So a bishop or a priest is able to do this sacrament. The effects of the sacrament, very important for us to recognize what happens as a result of confession. We are reconciled back to God. We are reconciled with the church. And so we are back in communion with God and the church. There is also an increase bond with the communion of saints, both living and dead. And so remember, the communion of saints includes not just us here on earth that are trying to live the life, that's the church militant, but we also have the church glorious, right? The church who is in heaven, that's praying for us, that's interceding for us, that's cheering us on when we're on our way um, to confession. And then we have the church suffering, those that are being purged of their attachment to sin, um, who, are, who are very, um, very quickly, hopefully, on their way um, to their final reward. So the sacrament, this sacrament is really in anticipation of the final judgment. And that final judgment, we're going to be judged on our life, right? How well did we respond to the graces that God has made available to us in our lives? And so remember that beautiful parable in which Jesus himself tells. He says, you know, the son of man is going to come on the last day and it's going to be like this. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats and to the sheep he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant, come into your father's house. For when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was sick, you cared for me. And the righteous are going to say, Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, in prison, or sick? And he's going to say this. He's going to say, whenever you did it, for those that you lived among, you did it for me. Come in 
to your final reward. And then he's going to turn to the goats and he's going to say, I'm sorry, but I don't know you. Because when I was sick, you, di you didn't take care of me. You know, when I was disturbed, you didn't give me comfort. When I was ignorant, you didn't supply me with truth. And they're going to say, Lord, what, when, when did we see you at those times? And he's, and he's going to say to them, whenever you didn't do it, for the ones that were available to you, you didn't do it for me. So ladies and gentlemen, the only concrete way that we can love God is by loving one another. How are we doing with that? Let us ask for the grace to be poured out in us so that we can love well and live well and be welcomed into the final abode with the Lord. Okay, so how does this sacrament get celebrated? Well, it's a liturgical action. So it, it usually takes place in a church. It can take place really anywhere, but usually we have confessionals. We have, it's in the nave of the church or, you know, in the church somewhere. Um, there's usually a greeting and a blessing from the priest. Um, and then there's usually um, an invitation um, to start the sacrament in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the priest will say a scripture verse. Sometimes he won't. Um, he's going to pray that you have a good confession. You know, my prayers that you will confess well. Then you are called to confess your sins. And then the priest will speak to you about your sin, maybe give you some spiritual guidance about how you can avoid that sin. And then he's going to um, give you a penance, a prayer, and maybe an action to do. And then he's going to pray he's going to actually ask you to do the act of contrition. And so you're going to um, pray, you know, I'm heartily sorry for having offended thee because I fear the loss of heaven, but most of all, because I love you. And so with the help of your grace, I pray to sin no more and to avoid the near occasion of sin. Amen. And then he's going to pray the prayer of absolution over you, which is such a beautiful prayer. And then you are dismissed and you're going to go ahead and do your penance. There are communal um, celebrations of penance, which are um, wonderful. Usually every church will have them in these seasons of, um, of penance, such as Advent and Lent. Unfortunately, in this time of the coronavirus, they've all been canceled because it brings together large numbers of people. But a communal um, penance service does not mean we give public absolution or general absolution, right? Um, in a public penance service, what we basically do is gather as a community of faith. We have about 20 priests scattered out throughout the church, and people then are able, after we pray a prayer together as a community, go to their individual priests and make their individual confessions. There is such a thing as general absolution, and it should only be used in times of great um, crisis or emergency. And so this happens sometimes, um, let's say, uh, you know, a priest is on a plane and the plane is going down. Um, he can stand up and pray a prayer over everyone and give them general absolution for their sins. Um, if that plane doesn't crash, <laughs> they, those people that are Catholic need to go to confession. Um, and so general absolution is really only um, kind of um, becomes helpful if the crisis comes to that fruition. So if, in fact, the plane crashes, then then the absolution has come into um, effect. Otherwise, 
the plane was safely landed, everybody needs to go to confession um, and do the normal way of, of confessing their sins. Okay, let's talk about anointing of the sick. What is anointing of the sick? Anointing of the sick, again, is a continuation of the healing presence of God. Um, and I think that it's so important because when, when people are sick or, or suffering from an illness, this is a real, real difficulty. And this is often what can lead people away from God. They blame God for their sickness. It can also draw people near. Because it, this is when you suffer, when you're sick, this is when you recognize, man, I can't do this on my own. I need help. I need the Lord. It is Christ, the physician, who provides this anointing of the sick. Now we see the sacrament actually instituted in the book of James, chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. This is what the apostles call for. They say, is there any sick among you? Let him call for the elders or presbyters, translated priest, of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick man, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So this is where we believe that the anointing of the sick is instituted in the book of James. And so the sign of the anointing of the sick is the anointing with oil. So oil is that visible sign. And why is that? Because we talked about what oil signifies. It, it signifies a healing. It signifies that you're the anointed one. It signifies the forgiveness of sins. It signifies a strengthening that's received when athletes oil up their muscles. It signifies beauty, which is given when you are then pure of heart. Who can receive the anointing of the sick? Anybody in danger of death, anyone that's in old age, um, anyone that's undergoing a serious procedure, anyone who has a chronic illness, this sacrament can be repeated as often as is necessary for the peace of the person receiving it. The only persons that can administer the sacrament of healing are both the bishop and the priest. It is only a priest, a ministerial priest, who can um, provide the anointing of the sick. I think it's important when a person is receiving the anointing of the sick to prepare that person to receive the sacrament. And oftentimes what will happen is that the priest will speak to the person and then ask them, would you like to receive the sacrament of confession um, before we give you the anointing of the sick? You will be more well disposed when you have confessed your sins and when you are bonded deeply and united with Christ and his church. There's usually a prayer that is done, and usually the person is surrounded by their community after they've made their confession, obviously. We can do this in the church. There's, there's, there's sometimes we do um, healing masses where we'll do the sacrament of penance. Now again, it's not for the whole community to receive because the whole community is in the need of an anointing of the sick. It's only for those who are actually sick. And so we shouldn't just be all be lining up to get this anointing. Um, and so we can surround, though, the persons that are receiving this sacrament and pray with the priest. So it is a liturgical sacrament, um, but it's also very communal. It can take place really anywhere, in a home, church, hospital. And usually if it's outside of the church, the priest will bring with him the Eucharist. Because 
the Eucharist should be given after the anointing of the sick and confession have been completed. Because the Eucharist, we're giving, we're anointing this person because they're in danger of death. And so if death does occur, they will, be have, they will have been given food for the journey. And so viaticum should be the last sacrament, and that's the Eucharist. Food for the journey, whether it's a journey back to recovery, back to health, or whether it's a journey to the Lord. So the priests of the church, they lay their hands on the person who needs anointing. They pray over them, and they anoint them with the oils which were blessed by the cardinal at the chrism mass in the Easter season. What are the effects of the sacrament? The anointing of the sixth is a particular gift of the Holy Spirit which is given. It gives the person who is suffering a strengthening so that they're given the strength to, to go through this difficult time. They're given a peace, an interior peace, which is often very difficult in times of, of illness. There's so much worry about finances, about family, about houses, about all kinds of things that they're concerned about that have to do with daily life. And so peace is one of the gifts or the effects of the sacrament. And then finally, courage, courage to face this illness, courage to face whatever repercussions come from it, what consequences of surgery may exist. Another effect of the sacrament is union with the passion of Christ. You see, all of us are called through our gift of faith, hope, and love to love like Christ loves. And Christ, how did he love? He loved by giving everything of himself to another. And he did so through sacrifice and suffering. And so suffering is part of our identification as a disciple of Christ. And so we're consecrated to bear fruit by configuring ourselves to Christ's passion. And so we become like him in our suffering. So we're given an ecclesial grace, which means um, a grace of the church, um, a grace to be able to counteract suffering. We're also given a grace to those that surround the one who suffers, that they can actually be compassionate, that they can suffer alongside, that all of us will be cognizant of our need to prepare for the final journey. And so those are the sacraments of healing, the sacraments of penance or reconciliation or confession um, and the anointing of the sick. They are both sacraments of healing and what's important to remember about all of them is what is the sign of the sacrament? What is the visible sign of the sacrament? What is the effects of the sacrament? Who can perform these, the sacrament? When was it instituted? And what does it bring about? God bless.